You know, it's been uh, astounding to me how many men have contacted me and said, I didn't really necessarily think I was abused or I always questioned if I was abused. And then I read your book and now I know that I have been, but I never wanted to either accept it, believe that's what it was, or there's a part of me that didn't even recognize that that's what it was. Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today is the author of the book, Secret Shame, Dr. Doug Carpenter. Welcome to the show. We are talking about your book, Secret Shame, A Survivor's Guide to Understanding Male Sexual Abuse and Male Sexual Development, a topic people don't want to talk about. That's right. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you, Lori. Being able to talk about this topic and try to educate about this topic, this book naturally is very important to me, but many years of research and time and effort into this because I really want to get this message out in relation to males who've been sexually abused. And it really is a guide. And when I was reading through it, I was so impressed on all the things you touched on. First of all, we protect our girls. We don't think about protecting our boys. So let's talk about the prevalence of male sexual abuse. There's a lot of statistics that show that one in six boys have experienced some kind of unwanted or some kind of sexual uh, touch and exposure before the age of 18. So that's one in six. With girls, we know that it's this statistic seems to be one in three, but one in six. The problem I think with males is they often don't disclose. Males often wait 25 to 26 years before they ever disclose that they've been abused. Or, you know, there's a huge problem because the male body responds so quickly and easily to touch that many males don't think they've been abused. They think they somehow participated in the event. We call that the myth of complicity. And so then they think, well, I was complicit to this because my body responded. So this wasn't abuse when actually it was abuse. You know, I tell, I tell males all the time, your body responded just like God designed it to. Your body doesn't know the difference between abuse and sex or intimacy at all. Your body responds to all those things the exact same way. And it can be very confusing for males. Children, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, especially children. Or as they grow into adolescence, they, they'll just be very confused about why did my body respond that way? And that probably wasn't abuse. And I can't ever tell anybody about that. That's too shameful. I noticed when we interview women versus men, men always say they make a a commitment to themselves early on. I am never telling anyone. Never, never, because it's so it carries so much shame. And through all the research that I've conducted and read, the number one side effect for males is is really that sexual confusion, that fear of homosexuality of being sexually confused or being perceived that someone's going to think I was homosexual or I must be gay because my body responded or I must be gay and don't know it yet or I did something that must have made this perpetrator think that I wanted this or he could do this to me. So many males feel so much shame 
about that and especially about the sexuality confusion that they just vowed to never never tell anyone what do you think is the breaking point when they finally decide it's worth telling their story well i don't know that there's a specific breaking point i think males go through a lot of agony can i tell should i tell and what has to be present before i i tell so there has to be what I call in the book some optimal conditions before a person decides to tell. One of those conditions could even be if somebody would just directly ask me if I've been abused or if something has ever happened. Sometimes people are just waiting to be asked. If you will just see within me that I'm hurting and that I'm in pain and that you'll ask. When a male finds somebody who they believe will really listen to them, who will believe them, and who can respond to them appropriately, they'll start testing the waters. Is this going to be a safe person to tell? Another condition can be, do I or the person I'm going to tell have the right language to use around this? Will they think this is abuse versus that was sex play? Or you were just being initiated. Boys enjoy sex. They have to decide that the person that they're going to disclose to will have the right language maybe they've tried to tell. And just this week, two people I was talking with revealed to me childhood abuse and tried to tell a parent. Both these people, one was a woman, one was a man. The parent did not believe them. And so maybe they try and they get rebuffed. Yes. Number one, always believe a child when they come forward that with this. In organizational psychology, there's this thing called, and I'm sure you've heard this, the foot in the door technique. If you can just get a little bit in there, you can start kicking open the door. Well, a lot of abuse victims will do that. They will make some, maybe almost what could even sound like a benign statement to see how you're going to react. For example, one of the things that I have written in my book, like a child may drop a hint to you like, I don't like so-and-so very well. And if a parent just responds, oh, don't be silly, or that's mean, why are you saying that? You should like them. They're great. They do this, they do that. Why are you saying that? When a child tells you they don't like someone, that should pique your curiosity. And as a parent or a person who a child says that to, I would encourage you to say, tell me more about that. Let me hear more about that. What are your thoughts about that? Like, what, what is there about them that you don't like? How do they make you feel? And then a child will then feel maybe that, oh, it's safe to take the next step and to say the next thing and see how you react. I feel like it is our responsibility as people who may hear these stories, that it's our responsibility to be good listeners and responders, because that's the only way this is going to stop is by people being able to share. So what are some signs that somebody's trying to um, disclose something to you or let you know something's going on? What we just talked about, if they drop some little hint that I don't like someone or I feel uncomfortable at a certain place, or you may be with them and then see them interact with another person and notice something really strange about that interaction, or that the child becomes very clingy to an appropriate adult when the perpetrator walks into the room, or that they they seem to become very nervous or fidgety about that person being in the room. You want to pay close attention to those, just those small cues. Pay attention to any behavioral changes that you see in them. 
if their grades start dropping, if they start withdrawing, if they're not as friendly, outgoing as they used to be. Kids are trying to give a signal that something's wrong, something's off with me. A kid may accidentally refer to something sexual that you think they are not at an age where they should know anything about that. Or if a kid responds to an adult innuendo when you think, well, they should not know what that means. That's very subtle ways that a kid is trying to show that there's been a violation in some important boundaries around me because I shouldn't have this knowledge. I shouldn't have this information. I shouldn't have this level of understanding of adult innuendos or jokes. Parents also should be alert to anything strange that they see with their child's clothing, tears, rips, stains, blood, some discoloration that you're not sure what it is. And don't come at the child in an accusatory way. We've got to come in a way that shows curiosity. That's so good because I think as a parent, first reaction, we're going to be furious if we think we really check how we're responding. I love what you said about being curious because it's so easy to be scared and shut that down. They're either going to drop conscious cues or unconscious cues. They're going to be trying to tell you in some way when they start going through that process of mentally like, am I ready to disclose? Am I ready to test the waters here and try to let someone know that that I've been violated in some way? They might write something in a story. You might see something in one of their journals. You might see something strange in their play. You may notice that the Ken doll there or the Barbie doll there is doing something that's not really age appropriate Mm -hmm. (laughs) there. And that needs to, again, pique curiosity. What is the child playing out? Kids work out their psychological issues through play. And so if a child has been sexually abused, they very well may act that out in some kind of play, either with toys, with dolls, or even with another child. And then you as a parent or the the babysitter or the person in charge, again, needs to have that idea of curiosity. I'm going to explore this in a non-leading and a non-judgmental way. It has to be a very open, open dialogue. One thing I would say about that too is I knew of a family whose daughter was saying some odd things and accusing somebody of something. And that wasn't the case, but the situation was that something was going on. She was just pointing fingers to try to like say I'm hurting, but also distract. Two things that come to mind is, okay, I'm that aunt, that babysitter, that mom, and I'm going to be curious, then what? Well, definitely, I think you need to tell them that you're a safe person. I care about you. I care about your well-being. I want you to feel like you can tell me anything and that I'm going to be on your team. And I'm going to be here to support you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to walk with you through this. You have to present yourself as a curious person and then as a safe person. And somebody that's going to continue to protect them. Right. That will be their advocate, so to speak. Absolutely be their advocate. 
I'm a mandated reporter, but parents, babysitters, aunts and uncles, they don't necessarily understand that. So what, once you've got the trust, once they know they can trust you, because, you know, a lot of times the kids will say, don't tell my mom, they'll ask you to keep it a secret too. What's our next step? You have to tell the child that it is important that we tell someone because what was done to them is not right. And this person was was violating you and they they were sexually abusing you. And we have to tell someone the appropriate person and and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go with you to talk to your parents and we're going to we're going to tell your parents together and your parents love you. And I'm sure that they'll continue to care about you, but we'll be there together and we'll do this. That's good because we also know that the abuser often will threaten the child with killing or unlove. Well, you have to bring a sense of reality to the situation because the child has been fed all these lies. And so you as the healthy adult in the situation have to start dispelling those lies to the child. That's not true. That doesn't happen. They're not going to do that. This is just the way that they're trying to control you. So you feel trapped and you're not trapped. You can talk to me about this and we can keep you safe. Yeah, I like that. We can keep you safe. I think what we see in adults when they finally do share their story, there's that part of them that I think still feels like a child and still feels like that threat is valid. It becomes a trauma template from a childhood and those messages stay with us for years and years and years. The brain registers feelings and feelings don't have an age. So in adulthood, whenever you tell your story, you very well may have the same childlike feelings and fears and traumatic reactions that you had back then because feelings are stored in our brain, in our memories, and they are what they are. They they often don't change because they are state dependent, meaning they, they latch on to things. A certain trigger is going to elicit a certain feeling. And it doesn't matter if you're 80 or you're eight. That's just the way our brain works. Something that I just thought of is when you said trigger is I've known adults that when they see maybe a child of their abuser, who is now the age the abuser was when it happened, and they look similar, that causes a whole storm of emotion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anything can be a trigger. I mean, I've heard of all kinds of things being triggers for people. But but it is true that oftentimes you will see a child at the age that you were abused, and that will trigger some feelings for you, either for that child, or you'll remember how you felt at that age and what that experience was like for you. You know, we don't lose who we are as children. That little person lives inside of us, which is another reason why I know that your listening audience can't see the cover of the book, but the cover of the book is a man's head that really you can see down the middle and down in the middle is a little tiny child because our inner children live inside of us. They don't go away. Our little selves are in there and they still hold all those feelings and those memories and unfortunately those traumas that we've had as well. So I love what you said. If you feel like a child is trying to tell you something, be curious, be a good listener, say good words. What came to mind for me is hold it together. Be the adult. No matter what's going on, no matter you're going to go kill somebody in your mind. 
you hold it together, you be what that child needs until you're in a place where you can punch the wall, cry, whatever you need to do. Right. But not with the child. Yeah. You hold it together. You be what I call a safe container. You be their safe space. You be their safe container where they can give you their thoughts and feelings. Another section in the book that I talked about cultural impacts of sexual abuse. And in some, especially South American cultures, one reason why kids don't disclose is something called obligatory violence, that the father is obligated to respond in a violent manner to the perpetrator if the child discloses. So a lot of times children are very fearful of disclosing to their parents because then there's some obligation for them to respond violently and get revenge. And Mm -hmm. so those children are less likely to tell parents. They may be more likely to tell a friend or someone at school. And in fact, that's true in most cultures. If we look at the research, when kids disclose, they often do it to another kid versus an adult. And oftentimes it's that other kid who then goes to an adult and says, hey, mom, when Mark was over here today, he told me X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried about him. I've heard survivors as adults say, man, I wasn't going to tell because I knew my, my dad would kill that person and go to prison. Right. And oftentimes that, that is true. They, they will think that Either they're going to get in trouble or that their parent will go after the other person. And then what kind of havoc is that going to wreak in their life? They'll be back to being in an unsafe position right? because my parents not going to be here to take care of me. So many levels of trauma. Well, and a lot of times the perpetrators will tell kids that, you know, if you get me in trouble, there's not going to be anybody here to take care of you because, you know, your parent is then going to have to go work more hours or. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to be able to stay in the apartment that you're in and right. you know, just the deep manipulation that happens. Before we go, one thing I want to talk about too, is we've talked about when the child is trying to disclose, you said it takes men, what, 23 to 26 years before they'll share their story. Yeah, usually 25 to 26 from the so- research. Say you're talking with a friend. We just interviewed uh, Nathan from Toy Cars. Yes. And he said, you know, he, his life was falling apart. His best friend, he finally told her and she was able to get him help. Can we talk about what that's like? You know, how we can support people when we, you know, we, we may not know why their life's falling apart, but often we, I work with people in recovery from drugs and alcohol. And when it comes to shove, guess why Mm -hmm. they started. So, right. Well, again, I think it goes back to one of the points I made earlier is either we as counselors or even you as a friend, if you have a friend whose life is falling apart, be direct with your questions when you sit down and have a heart to heart with them. You know, what has happened in your life that's causing you to want to use drugs and alcohol like this? Have you been abused? Do you need help? Is there something, have you been through some kind of trauma where I can help you get to a professional who can help you through these things and, and you could have a better quality of life. Don't be afraid to directly ask. If you've been raped, have you been assaulted? Were you abused as a child? If, if you care about someone and you see that they're in pain and struggling, it's worth the risk to be more direct with them. Worst case scenario, they go, no, what are you thinking? And then maybe later they go, oh, 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I guess so. Yeah. Or maybe they start to think, well, I didn't think I was, but look at where my life's at and X, Y, and Z happened in the past. And I never really thought of that as abuse. You know, it's been uh, astounding to me how many men have contacted me and said, I, I didn't really necessarily think I was abused or I always questioned if I was abused. And then I read your book and now I know that I have been, but I never wanted to either accept it, believe that's what it was, or there's a part of me that didn't even recognize that that's what it was. Because who wants that to be your story? It's like, if you're recognizing right. and you're going, okay, my life's falling apart. Maybe it's time to get help. I don't want this to be my story. I don't want this to be my legacy. But on the other hand, what I think you would agree is what we've seen when people finally share their story and yes. then they recognize there are other people and they're not alone and that it doesn't name them. That is not who they are. It's what happened to them. Right. Well, and for males, you know, this gets off into a whole nother topic we could talk about at some point too, but you've got to break through those myths of our culture that males are supposed to be strong. You can't be weak. You're supposed to be sexual. You're supposed to always be ready for sex. Men like sex. All these stereotypes that are put on boys and men to then feel like, well, I can't disclose that because my female babysitter, I was 13 and she was 16, made me do this stuff with her and it really messed me up, but I can't tell anybody that. I can't admit that was abuse. I'll look weak. I'll look like, well, why didn't you like that? Why didn't you see that as initiation? I would have loved that to happen to me. Boys, guys will say stupid things like that. That whole mask, masculinity culture thing fights against men and boys feeling like they have the opportunity to disclose. We're talking with Dr. Doug Carpenter. His book is Secret Shame, A Survivor's Guide to Understanding Male Sexual Abuse and Male Sexual Development. Doug, where can we get your book? It's on Amazon. So just go right to Amazon and type in Secret Shame, A Survivor's Guide, and it should come right up. There are, there are a lot of books out there called having to do with secret and secret shame. So you might have to add on that a survivor's guide to for it to pull right up. And the book also has a 150 page workbook that goes along with the book. If you are somebody who wants to work through your trauma, and it's just called a secret shame workbook. If you know somebody that you suspect, maybe get this book. If, if you're going, oh my goodness, that's me, get this book. Because I think what I'd like to hear from you, Doug, is we look at survivors and we say, oh, they've been through this horrible thing. But I also think the word survivor shows courage. It shows hope. What would you like to say about that? Maybe on the other side of the show. Absolutely. When you become a survivor, you can begin to change the way you've seen your life and you can begin to rewrite your future life script. And not only be a survivor, but move into being a thriver for your life. I love so that. Your story does not end in being a victim. That's just the beginning of that story. And there's a totally different path you can take. And that you're not alone. I just, that's what I keep hearing, especially men. I mean, women, I think there's... It's, I don't think it's harder that we can't measure that, but there is a lot more support for women 
And yes. I think there's a, a, a lot less judgment when we hear a woman's been abused. We go, oh, when we hear a guy's been abused, we might go, oh, we might get judgmental. We might we might think, oh, well, if they were abused, they're abusing others. It seems like there's this whole big thing of that goes yes. along with men that doesn't go along with women. Yeah, there's a lot more compassion offered to women than there are to men around this topic. You're absolutely correct. I think the book is appropriate if you're a clinician and want to learn more about this. If you're a related or have somebody in your life that you think has been abused, it can really educate you about what they're going through and how to respond. And if you're somebody who's been abused and have just believed so much of the lies, the book can really help bring truth and light into the dark place that you're in and, the, and what you've come to believe about yourself. I would say also for coaches, because I think often, you know, that when we look at coaching, it's what is stopping you. And often it's that one thing that, that yes. hasn't been talked about. So if you're a life coach, a recovery coach, read this book. For sure. See how it could support you and your clients in, in coaching. And um, let's help get the word out. Let's help people. Uh, become survivors and and be able to tell their story in a safe place. Agree. Thank you so much, Dr. Doug, and we'll look forward to having you on again. All right. It was great to see you again, Lori. Dr. Doug Carpenter, his book is available on Amazon. It is called Secret Shame, A Survivor's Guide to Understanding Male Sexual Abuse and Male Sexual Development. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference.